0: I want to read these passages and just raise some questions. Last week we talked about the reality of spiritual warfare. Uh, basically saying this, that other cultures see what we don't see. Uh, they take it for granted. They just assume that there are spiritual beings. They've always known this. Uh, spiritual beings whose behavior impacts their life and whose their life impacts their life. Uh, never mind. But The idea is that there's a spiritual world that we interact with there. And most cultures see that very clearly, but the Western culture lasts several hundred years because of the scientific, post-Enlightenment, rationalistic, naturalistic revolution that we've been through. We've been blinded to that reality. And if you're ever going to be involved in spiritual warfare, or even begin to be aware of spiritual warfare, you've got to break the stronghold of Western naturalism, our scientific worldview, and begin to see the world in terms of this warfare. We're caught in a veritable battlefield, folks. There's a war going on. And God calls us to to have a role to play in this battle. But most Western people don't see that or don't take it very seriously. One of the reasons is because we just operate with a worldview. We wear spectacles that prevents us from seeing that. So last week we just talked about the sheer reality of the uh, spiritual world, the world in between, as we said, the world between us and God. There's a whole cosmic society of free agents there that need to be taken into account of. What I want to do this morning is just give a little bit of a teaching, not so much a preaching thing, though we don't know how it's going to turn out, but but, but I, my goal is to have a teaching time on something to do with the, the, the nature of that world in between, the nature of this spiritual reality, this these invisible agents that we call angels. And I want to do that as a, one more step in getting us to have a worldview that is biblical, a worldview that lines up with the Word of God. Most Western people do not take the reality of spiritual warfare seriously because of Western naturalism, as I said, but also because there's certain theological assumptions that we've inherited that keep us from really believing that there's a battle going on. And I'm going to talk about those this morning. Okay, finally, when you get to the verse, all right, here it comes. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10. finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Stop there for a second ask a couple questions. I'm a professor. I love questions. I think questions are the way that lead to knowledge. So let's ask some questions. Questions like this. Is it really the case that we need to put on the full armor of God to resist the devil's schemes? Is it really the case that there's a devil out there trying to get us? And is it really the case that unless we put on the full armor of God, we, we might not be able to stand against the devil's schemes? Could it actually be that something hangs in the balance as to whether or not we obey this verse or not? For our struggle, Paul says in verse 12, is not against flesh and blood. Is there really a struggle that's not against flesh and blood? A wrestling match? But against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's about four layers of spiritual powers that Paul names there. You gotta ask this question, are we really in a struggle? It doesn't feel like it, does it? It doesn't look like it. Are we really in a struggle? And is there anything that's in the balance in this struggle? Does anything hang on this? How important is it that we really take seriously this struggle? That we really do put on the full armor of God. We'll be talking about what that full armor is in the next couple of weeks. I think a lot of believers do not take seriously the reality of the spiritual struggle we're a part of because there's theological assumptions that we have that lead us to think that really secretly somehow behind the scenes everything's happening according to God's plan. And so there really isn't a struggle. Oh, Paul tells us there's a struggle, but you know really the struggle is is, is is carrying out a prescript that God has in His mind. I'll say more about that later on. Daniel chapter 10, now I don't want to read those verses, I read them last week, but I'll just tell you what they say for those of you who weren't here last week. There's a message, Daniel's praying for three weeks and finally an angel shows up and says, Daniel, I want you to know that from the moment you started praying, I was dispatched to answer you, but I got detained by the Prince of Persia, this evil angelic force that has jurisdiction over Persia, apparently. And I had to do battle with him, and I would have still been back there, but Michael the archangel came and freed me so that I could bring this message to you. And now I've got to go back right away and fight because the prince of Greece, who apparently is another evil power, is going to join the prince of Persia, and we're going to have a mega war. So i got to go. That's a bizarre passage. You've got to ask yourself the question. When was the last time that you ever considered the possibility that a prayer didn't get answered, that perhaps it had something to do with the interference of some demonic power? Usually we just think, oh, you know, God didn't will it, or I didn't have faith enough, or something like that. But the Bible presents a very different picture. This this being interfered with God's will. Just the same way that I suppose that I, being a free agent, I could interfere with God's will for Doug's life here. I you know, I don't think it's God's will that, that, that he die right now. I, I doubt it. You know who knows, eh? But let's assume so, so that's not. But I being a free agent, I can screw things up. Maybe I can come down there and beat his brains out. I don't think God wills me. God's not making me beat beat His brains out. But I will to beat His brains out. And I have moral responsibility. I can interfere with Doug's life. And so also, apparently, these powers have the ability to interfere with God's plan to answer a prayer. Either that or God's lying, or the angel's lying, when He says, from the minute minute, uh, we heard your prayer, I was dispatched. These beings can interfere with God's plan. Finally, Psalms 82. Let me just read this to you. And I want you just to take this stuff this morning and chew on it and read on it and go, go back to God's Word and pray on it. It's a different picture I want to give you here, but I believe it's very important because without it, you cannot really take seriously the reality of spiritual warfare. Psalms 82, it says this, God presides in the great assembly. Now, what great assembly? Well, here it is. He gives judgment among the gods. Okay, there's an assembly here, and there's a bunch of gods that are assembled here. Now, of course, there's only one God. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's only one God with a capital G, only one Creator, only one Lord of all the earth. But in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament a little bit, they call these angels, these powers, gods. Paul says that Satan is the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4. 4. They're mighty beings, powerful beings. They are to us what maybe we are to our pets, or something like that. They're, they have tremendous authority and jurisdiction. They get together now and then, apparently, and have an assembly. We read about this in other passages of the Bible. Just let it go ahead and sit weird. I know it's weird, but it's, the Bible says it, so just let it sit. And my policy is always, in Scripture, to take it literally, unless I've got very good reasons in Scripture not to take it literally. So I take this literally. I think there's an assembly. Look, it, we have human assemblies. Why can't we have angel assemblies? They get together. And God apparently stands up and He presides in the great assembly. You read about this in the first, cha- in the first couple chapters of Job. There was a great assembly. The Ben Elohim is the Hebrew. The sons of God get together. These angels get together. And they have some kind of a conference. And then Satan shows up and spoils the party. You read about it in other places. In Second Kings, uh, Ahab uh, uh, is screwing up. So God says, He calls an assembly. And He says, God presides in the council of the gods and says, who will go down for us and deceive King Ahab? In, 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 in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord enthroned on high, and there's all these angels there, and then the Lord says, who will go, who, who can we send from among us to carry this message? And Isaiah says, I'll go. But the idea here is, is that there's a council. Sometimes the Lord invites input. He says, who will go for us? Who will, who will volunteer? And we may think that's kind of odd, but look at it. God invites us to give input to him. Why should it be weird if angels can do that? We have a lot of weird ideas on angels that I just don't think are very biblical. So he gives judgment among the gods. What he's doing here, this is, a, this is an angelic reaming out session. Listen to this. How long, he says, will you, and the you is in the plural there, how long will, will all of you defend the wicked or the unjust? And how long will you show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. He's talking to these gods here. You you, you, hire beings. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's what you're supposed to do. In the original Hebrew of Deuteronomy 32, it says that God divided up the nations according to the number of the sons of God or the number of, of, of these angels. And apparently they're given jurisdiction. They're given assignments. Why not? We were created and given an assignment to care for the earth. They were given assignments to care for different nations. So they're not doing their job. And Yahweh is getting pretty ticked off here. He says, look at these human beings. They know nothing. Thanks a lot, God. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are, are shaken. I said, you are God's. You are all sons of the Most High. Okay, I, I, That's true. You are God's but you will die like mere men. You're going to die like mere mortals. You'll fall like every other ruler. Unless, unless you carry out these assignments, you're goners, is the Lord saying. That's why I call it a reaming out session. And then the psalmist pipes in, Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Strange passage. Let me pray for a second. Father, give us a picture here of what's going on. Lord, we're so out of tune with this uh, dimension of the cosmos that you've created. And yet it impacts our life. And you've told us through Paul not to be ignorant of the schemes of these angelic powers. So, Lord, wake us up. Wake us up. Cause us to rise up, to step up to the plate, to take the bat in hand and do what you've called us to do. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. You get a pretty different picture of these these, uh, powers here, these angelic authorities uh, here, than we normally get. I got an angel poster uh, in my office. Um, it's, uh, every calendar has these posters, it's kind of an angelic. Never mind. I was gonna say an angelic pinup thing, but but it's kind of like it, it, every every month has you know there, there's an angel of the month. You know, I, it's the only thing that came to mind. Sorry. He got these angels. You know, like, I, I I like thinking about angels. And uh, um, but they're all you know they're all these. A lot of them are like fat babies on clouds with wings, you know, and, and they're playing harps. And, and, and we get these weird ideas on, on angels. They're these innocuous, kind of devoid of personality, devoid of will, devoid of real intelligence. They're just sort of these cute automatons that carry out the will of God no matter what. You know, that's kind of the idea we have. We don't take them very seriously. But the Bible talks about them in very different terms. It talks about a hierarchy, a society of these angelic beings. That, uh, and, and, and mention some different levels of them. And we're not told much about this and we shouldn't get too overly curious about it. But there are, we just read in the passage this morning in Ephesians 4, there's rulers, there's dominions, there's powers, there's authorities. And, and uh, there's other terms that are used to describe these, gods being one of them. And apparently in Scripture they are not devoid of personality, they're not devoid of free will. They can carry out assignments well or they can blow them. They can they can use their volition for good or they can use it for evil. That's why the Bible talks about fallen angels. How could you have fallen angels unless they had some kind of free will? How could God be chewing them out here unless they had some kind of free will? But here's the thing, and maybe this is kind of normal to some extent, um, but it seems that it all it seems like like we always assume that the beings above us got their act together. You know, when you're kids, you assume that your parents got their act together, don't you? Assume that. Mom and dad, you know, I don't know what's going on, but they do, you know, and it's all cool. Of course, when you become a mom and dad, you know that the kids are, you know, are are completely duped. You you, you don't have it together. You just don't tell them about your problems. But but it means it's a security thing. We like to think that the beings above us got their act together. Uh, My kids now they're learning differently, but they probably once thought that I had my act together. And now they're learning differently. My pet, my my dog, my dog thinks my dog thinks I'm a god. You know, and, and as far as my dog is concerned, I am. I mean, it's like. The power of life and death is in my hand, and sometimes it comes close to being death. One more doo-doo on the rug, and you're done for. But the dog, the dog doesn't know why I do what I do. Why do I lock it up when I lock it up and all this other kind of stuff? You know, like, like God says about human beings, it doesn't understand anything. It walks around in the darkness. It doesn't, you know, it just barks. That's all it does. It probably thinks that I got my act together, but I know that, in fact, my life is full of some struggles and some problems and some things i got to work out. So also it is with us with regard to these higher beings. We always assume, it seems, that that everything up there is okay. Down here we got struggles. Down here, you know, there's things that depend on what we do. There's ifs, there's contingencies, you know, there's there's, there's wars, there's fighting, there's pain. And we assume that that's a human thing. But up there, there's just little fat babies with wings playing harps on clouds. What the Bible tells us is this. Up there ain't so different than down here. This is the kind of thing that you would, have, you would find, I and mean, we, we, we can accept that employers remount their employees, and that princes ream out their knights, and, and presidents remount their, their cabinet. But when it comes to angels, we don't think in those terms. But what the Bible is, is portraying is that the, that world is not so different than the world down here, and we shouldn't think it would be because they are, after all, created very much like we are. But here's what happens. Now, I don't deal with philosophy much here. I don't like to lose people with philosophy. I personally enjoy philosophy a lot. I like studying it. But I don't share much of it because I know people tend to tune you out. But sometimes it's very important to just do a little bit of philosophy. So hang with me here, okay? I want to buy three minutes of your time on philosophy. Three minutes. Because this is important. Because this is very influential. And and if you get this, you'll understand why we don't take spiritual warfare very seriously. Well, 2,500 years ago, there was a man named Plato. How many people here have heard of Plato. Heard of Plato? Okay, about half of you have. Plato—it's not the stuff that you make, you know, mold into. I heard of Plato. I played with it all the kids all the time as a kid. This is a philosopher named Plato. He is called the, by many, the most influential philosopher in all of history, all of Western history. Alfred North Whitehead, in his book *Process and Reality*, said that the whole of Western philosophical history is but a mere footnote to Plato. Isn't that exciting? Well, listen to this—he was very influential. Some of his ideas were good. Some of his ideas were very wrong, I think. But all of his ideas were influential. The most influential idea he had was his uh, his idea of the realm of the forms, he called it. The realm of the forms. Some of you have heard about that? Here's his idea. To explain... He didn't know the Bible. He's 500 years before the New Testament. He doesn't know any of this. He's a Greek. He's a pagan. He's a heathen. So he's trying to figure out the world. So to to do that, he, 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 he supposes this. There must be a higher realm that's totally unlike this realm, and that explains this realm. If, if this realm has change, that realm must never change. If this realm has imperfection, that realm must be altogether perfect. And so he posited this realm of the forearms where he basically said this for a lot of different reasons. The higher world, the world above us, the invisible world, is a world that is a prototype of this world. Everything here is a mere copy of that world. We have imperfect trees here, but they have perfect trees, or actually one perfect tree. Everything here is a mirror image of that world. Some degree, this world is actually unreal. And all of time and all of change and all decisions are actually just a mirror of that world. In other words, hang with me now. My three minutes is almost done. There's a divine blueprint that dictates what takes place here. There's a tree, as it were. Picture a tree. Plato said that, that time and change is the moving shadow of eternity. Picture a tree and the shadow moves. Well, he held that this physical world is but the shadow of, of, of eternity. It doesn't change. There's this realm of utter perfection where nothing changes. So he held, and a lot of the churches held because of him, that God never, in any respect, changes, never has a new experience, never really loves, because love implies change, never makes decisions. God is altogether immutable, impassable, da 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 The main point to get out of this is that they held that everything that happens here on earth is simply a working out of what happens up there. Now along comes a man named St. Augustine in 580. He's a Christian. He loves Plato, he also loves the Bible, and he tries to fuse the two together. So what he ends up doing is he ends up Christianizing Plato. if you understand this, you're going to understand a lot of the way we think. Because Augustine, if Plato's been the most influential philosopher in history, Augustine's been the most influential theologian in history. And here's what Augustine said. Everything that happens in this world is for the glory of God. That divine blueprint that Plato talks about, well, that's just the mind of God. And everything that happens, however great, however small, however good, or however evil is but the working out of a divine plan. And though it seems like we make decisions here below, really we're just working out God's will. There's a script that we're all following. You see, there's a, there's a pre-script that God has, a plan. And so, St. Augustine said, really there's no evil, because God is all good, and everything that happens is a working out of God's will, therefore there is no evil. Or oh, there are things that look evil but it's just from our limited perspective. If we could see the whole of history, we'd see how everything, however terrible, fits into God's perfect will. So working out of Plato. That belief has had some serious repercussions on the church throughout history and especially today. Very few people buy into that philosophy full-fledged, though there are still some. But that philosophy causes us to, to, to do a number of things. One thing is that it is what lies behind. Every time a person wants to blame God for evil in this world, you're seeing an echo of St. Augustine, which, he, which himself is an echo of, of Plato. Uh, a, a young lady, uh, just to pull out a couple of examples here, a young lady uh, uh, gets married, and um, uh, she... All of her life has been praying that God would find the right man. In fact, she believed that God had preordained, there's a blueprint here, scripted the man she was going to marry even when she was like 12 years old. And that God, God had a man picked out. And her job was just to find that man, you see. And, and God would give her a sign, there's going to be a sign that this is the right guy. And that, that theology, whatever you think about it, it's, it's a little bit dangerous because I know a lot of people who thought they saw the sign, they got married, and one year into the marriage they're wondering whether this could possibly be the person that God picked out for them. Couldn't God do a little better? And then they get mad at God for giving them such a loser. It backfires. But here's what happened to this young lady. She got married. I mean, she met this guy at Bethel College and the, 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 the bells went off. The, the whistles blew. The bombs exploded. The hormones went crazy. Everything seemed like it was the will of God. This person loved what she loved. She wanted to be a missionary. She wanted to be a missionary. Oh, it was just sleepless in Seattle, folks. It was beautiful. And they got married. What's well, a Christian sleepless in Seattle deal. There's a script here. And they get married. A little while into the marriage, it turns out that a friend of hers is pregnant from him. It turns out this guy's been sleeping around all over the place. It turns out this guy is a real jerko. Now, she was really mad at him. Duh. But who she was really mad at was God. Really mad at God. Because, you see, this blueprint idea really backfired for her. And when I talked with her, she'd actually walked away from God for about three years. She was so mad because she said, look at Greg, all I wanted to do, all my, my goal was to find the right man, to be married to the right man, to be a missionary. Is that so wrong? What did I do to deserve this? How could God set me up with such a loser when my heart was right with Him? He gave me all the signs, and if, and if He didn't tell me to marry this guy, then I could never trust God's voice again because this was so clear and so obvious. What do you do with something like that? If you say, well, you know, you made a mistake, you didn't hear from God. Then she'd say, well, then I then for listen, if I couldn't trust that word, I can't trust any word. I would give up trying to hear from God. It's all zero, It's all zodiac horoscope guessing, anyway. But what about this possibility? I suggested to her. What if, what if this husband? What if you actually had a, a free will involved in this? You know, see, that's the thing. She wanted to also believe that it was her choice uh, and her husband's choice. What if he was a free agent? And what if he chose because he's a free agent? To blow it. Do we have the power to do that? Do we have the power to sin if we want to? Do we have the power to do evil if we want to? And, and can you really blame God for what a free agent does? You see, the, the, the problem occurred to her because she thought that there was this... She didn't want to take the rise up to the risk of the fact that maybe some things hang in the balance on what she chooses, what he chooses, and, and, and maybe that actually determines the way things are going to go. Maybe this is more like a great adventure book or a choose-your-own-adventure book. Where you know you go along and God gives you options options and you choose which way you're gonna go. But in that case, don't blame God for what your jerko husband did. And that really freed her a lot. It gave her a different picture of things. The legacy of the Augustinian heritage, this this idea that there's this mysterious blueprint, is what causes people to look for God's reasons for what evil people do, and even for what God's reasons for what Satan does, we think there's a purpose for little children getting kidnapped, and then we wonder, God, what, what did you have in store? But we also want to blame people. That's what's screwy about this. A guy hits a, a little girl while he's drunk and kills her in a car, and we want to blame the guy who said he shouldn't have got drunk, he shouldn't have done that, but at the same time we want to say, well, you know, God's still in control and he's got his reasons, and... Well, what was it now? Did God orchestrate this kid to get killed or or did the drunk driver do it? Is he responsible or is God responsible? The whole question there comes from this Augustinian use of of Plato. There's a, a script out there. And really it turns the whole world into a bunch of robots, a bunch of automatons, and gets people wondering what purpose God might have for what Satan himself does. And in the end, we end up attributing to God the stuff that the Bible attributes to Satan. It's really interesting, but I don't find any place in the New Testament where people try to figure out why God caused some kind of an evil. They always say Satan did it, or demons did it, or people did it. But they never attribute it to, to Satan. Jesus comes down here, and He comes against this stuff. He comes against it because it comes from the God of this age. It's not part of God's creation. It's not what God wills. It's what one of these... It's of one of these gods in the assembly will. It's what one of these higher powers will. But Jesus Christ comes against us and empowers us to come against it as well. But then here's the second thing that happens because of Augustine. If you think that everything follows the divine blueprint and it's all for the better, then you really don't have a lot of fuel to rise up against it. It creates a tremendous sense of lackadaisicalness in people. Kind of a que sera, sera fatalism. Because, you know... It's going, to, it's going to happen the way it's going to happen, you know. And, and, and uh, on the one hand, that provides a lot of security to people. On the other hand, it can be a total cop If you really believe that everything happens according to the divine blueprint, what, what urgency is there to pray? Well, I used to think this way all the time. It's like, okay, I'm going to pray. God tells me to pray. I'll pray. But when I pray, it doesn't make any difference. Because if I'm praying for a good thing, well, God's perfectly good and He would have done it anyway. And if I'm praying for something that's not good... Well, then God's not going to do that even if I pray. So what difference does prayer make? And then people say, well, prayer's for you. But it's not. it doesn't change God. It doesn't change the way things are. It helps you. Well, then why does Jesus tell us that the effectual prayer of a, of a righteous person uh, accomplishes much? Why does the Bible hang so much in the balance on whether we pray or not? Why does the Bible say that the prayer of faith shall heal the sick? I wouldn't get out of bed at 2 in the morning to pray if it's just going to change me. You see, you lack this urgency here. Not only that, but it tends to make people sort of spectators. Kind of, and some of you know what I'm talking about here, a sense of resignation. It's all going to just pan out the way it's supposed to pan out, and we just go through the motion, and we don't take responsibility, and somehow there's a mysterious blueprint behind the whole thing, and we don't really make much of a difference. And that just puts the church to sleep. What I want to drive home this morning, if I drive home anything, is this. The Bible, I believe, gives a very different picture of the world and of us than what Plato and Augustine give us. And I believe that we should let the Bible be our guide on these matters and not Plato or St. Augustine. The way the Bible, in a nutshell, portrays it is this, and I've got to be very brief about this. But God created us moral agents. We have moral responsibility. I genuinely am a moral agent being. I'm a free being. I have choices to make. In the Garden of Eden, God didn't create a bunch of automatons. He gave them a choice. Now, maybe you can ask, why would God give them a choice if they're going to perhaps choose evil and bring all this pain and woe into the world? But if you think about it, the only alternative would be to create a, a, a creation of robots, and that wouldn't be very interesting. You certainly couldn't have interpersonal love if you have a bunch of robots. So God creates beings who are risky. They are free. We do the same, time, same thing every time we have a, a, a child. A tremendous... We do the same thing every time we get married. Every time we fall in love with somebody. You might get burned. But we believe the risk is worth it. And that's God's evaluation here as well. Better than having a race of perfect robots is to have a race of persons who can choose to love, but that means they can also choose to go evil. And God has created human beings and also angelic beings in this fashion. It means this. It means this. It means that when evil happens, folks, it's not God who causes it. Now, hear me on this. God can bring and does bring, frequently brings good out of evil. The Bible promises that. Romans 8.28 says that God in all things, He doesn't ordain all things, but in all things, He is cooperating with us. Synergeo is the Greek word. He's cooperating with us to bring good out of it. God can make a masterpiece out of a disaster. That's what God specializes at, but He doesn't cause the disaster. People cause disasters. Angelic beings cause disasters. Free agents cause disasters. Morally responsible people cause disasters. God picks up the pieces when the disasters occur. I have the power to bless my kids. I have to have that if I'm a morally responsible agent. But I also have the power to really hurt my kids. I also have to have that if I'm a morally responsible agent. And don't blame God if I abuse my kids. Blame me. The buck stops with me. Evil is what we are to be fighting against. Here's the thing so much of Western theology has been about trying to accept, as from the hand of God, what God calls us to fight as from the hand of Satan. And we roll over and play dead and say, God, please help us accept this. I was in a meeting just last week where the person was praying for this woman that had cancer. And the prayer was, and the person's sincere, and I'm not trying to give a theological critique, I am giving a theological critique, but just for the purpose of example just bring God, this is hard to accept, but help us to accept it. Help us to just, you know, uh, be at peace and help the family to be at peace. Well, that's good. Pray that. But why not do what Jesus did and say, Lord, in Jesus' name, we rebuke the cancer? Why roll over and accept it? Jesus saw that stuff and He said, this is not part of God's design. This is the stuff we're supposed to be struggling against. But if you believe there's this blueprint that, 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 that we're all a bunch of mannequins or in puppets and that God's pulling all the strings... Well, then you just say, oh, this is a tough one, but hey, we've got to accept it. Don't blame God for what the enemy does, and don't just accept from what comes down the pipe as being the will of God. But the second thing is this. Now, I'll close with this, and we'll pick up with it next week. But it's this we make a difference. Now, thing. A lot hangs on us. As a kid, you need to, as a kid, you need to believe, perhaps, that everything's okay and, and you know what, uh, you know, there's no financial problems and, and everything is just going as planned. Maybe you need to believe that. But when you become an adult, you got to step up to the plate and say, you know what, if I don't balance my finances, no one's going to balance it. Uh, if I don't take care of my marriage problems, no one's going to take care of it. If I don't raise my kids right, no one's going to raise them right. If I don't get in the ball game, no one's going to be hitting the ball. I have a lot of responsibility and the exact same thing hangs for our spiritual life. God invests us as mature believers to the degree that we grow with a lot of responsibility. And we have the power to make a difference. And if we don't make that difference, the difference is not made. This is getting kind of profound here. huh? I, it hangs on us is what I'm saying. God puts a lot in the balance. hangs a lot in the balance in terms of spiritual war. We know this physically. Look, if I'm walking down the street and there's a house that's on fire and I hear a little kid and they're crying... We understand that if I run in there and risk my life, I might be able to save that kid. But if I stay out there and get scared and run the other direction, that kid's going to perish in the fire. The life of the kid hangs upon me. But why think? If God if God creates a world where that much hangs on what we do physically, why think that it would be any less spiritually? In fact, I would submit to you that the Bible would tell us that more hangs on what we do spiritually than what we do physically. That what we do in our prayer closet makes a difference that will... Things get done in a prayer closet that would not get done if we don't pray. When God wakes you up at 2 in the morning and says, start praying for somebody in Africa, I implore you to do it. Because it just might be that a whole lot hangs on that prayer. In just the same way that whether you run into a house and save a kid. Depends on whether or not that kid gets saved or not. As agents, free, moral, responsible agents, God wagers a lot on us. And it's kind of an awesome thing, isn't it? But here's what it does. Your Christianity comes alive when you take responsibility for it. When you realize that you are a soldier. This is how you move from being a pew sitter to a soldier in the army. You let God just tell you, you know what? I am banking on you. I'm waging lot on you. I need you to pray. When you begin to believe that, folks, you become a prayer warrior. You begin to pray with a fervency, with an intensity. When you begin to realize that you've got that authority, that if you don't do it, it might not get done. You begin to pray with an urgency. Or you begin to pray with an intensity. And your Christianity becomes a lie, that's what God always intended it to be. The final thing I'll just say is this. It's an awesome responsibility, and we need to rise up to the, to the occasion and realize that uh, the script's being written as we're playing out the game. But at the same time, know this, that just precisely because it's such an awesome responsibility, we dare not do any of it on our own. But rather, in everything, we have to be branches that are connected to the tree. I would die if I saw the responsibility that I as a believer and as a father and as a husband and as a human being have, if I thought I had to do that on my own. And so the final thing is to say, Lord, I cannot do this on my own. If I do it on my own, I will certainly screw up. The stakes are too high, Lord, for me to do it on my own. Lord, I yield to you. And I want to be just a channel through which you flow. I want to just be a faucet through which the water runs. I open up the taps and ask you, Lord, to inspire my prayer, to anoint my fathering, to anoint my being a husband, to be with me, Lord God. You love through me. You rejoice through me. Take control of this life. To crucify your life that you might live in Jesus Christ. The awesome responsibility is too great for us to do on our own. But He doesn't leave us to do it on our own. He comes through and says, you know what? The extension's of me. And let me do it. Father, I am praying right now, Lord, that You would waken us up to the reality of this struggle. This isn't a skit. This isn't a play. This is, a, this is, this is, this is for real, Lord. And, and uh, this isn't a preview. This is the real thing, Lord. And I pray, Lord God, that even right now, Lord, that as, as, as we know in Your Word, there's a Prince of Persia and there's a Prince of Greece, Lord, I pray, God, that, that we'd be rising up against the Prince of St. Paul and against the Prince of Minneapolis, who's under the Prince of Minnesota, who's under the prince of this world. And in Jesus' name, Lord, I, I, I claim for each believer here this morning the authority that You've given us in Jesus Christ. I thank You, Lord God, that we don't have to fight the battles if we rely on You, Lord. I thank You for the opportunity You've given to us to be used as instruments to save people, to free people, to deliver people, to form eternal souls. But Lord God, the opportunity is too awesome for us. We need You to be using us in every move we make. So, Lord God, cause us to be awake, to be aware, to go forth out of here with Your Spirit, Your anointing, and Your power in Jesus' name. Amen.